liftoff. We have a liftoff. Check. Okay, we're rolling. Okay. Can we start? All right, check, check. Here we go. Welcome to the Cannabis Coffee Hour. I'm your host, Rob Cantrell. I have a very, very special episode. Uh, we have a guest today at the Hiram Studios up in Park Slope. My main man, director uh, extraordinaire. He has a film out right now called Murder in the Front Row, which is about the early thrash metal scenes, and it's tearing up all the uh, festivals right now, and I grabbed him for 45 minutes to an hour, so we got him. So please welcome my good friend, Mr. Adam Dubin. Yo, 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 Rob Cantrell. Rob Cantrell is one of my favorite, favorite people. Aww. We are neighbors, and we have been buds for so many years, and uh, he's done films for me, and I could not be happier to be here doing this podcast. Oh, thank you, Adam. Thank you. I mean, you're a guest, but at the same time, it's a good chance just to get to hang with you, and uh, we'll get just the podcast uh, jargon out of the way so we can just talk. But no, it, it trips me out that we are such good friends. Like, mm -hmm. we definitely click, uh, and it's been like 10 years now, 15 years More, that, yeah, I've, yeah, yeah, that I've yeah. known you. I came to New York. You were probably one of the first industry but it was it was weird our relationship was more personal than mm -hmm. it was like industry or mm -hmm. creatively right off the gate your wife is like one of the best producers of stand-up comedy and that's how we got linked in she would actually rocky your wife uh would book all the big shows for bonnaroo uh all the comedians and that's how I, we first got uh introduced i think it was even a little before bonnaroo because i was doing a band called the stoned and we met, and I, I don't know, you know, Rob, you just got it. I mean, you just got what we were doing. We were a hard rock band. Yeah, Adam had this awesome project, Drunk Dra Drivers from Outer Space. I don't know if this is this project. I was a fan of this project because I do love me some good stoner metal. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you like, if you like, you know, just sludgy Black Sabbath mm -hmm. goofball, but it had a tinge of a goofball mm -hmm. uh, lyrics, but Fu Manchu clutch it had just these heavy mm -hmm. guitar tones as well as like just a nasty rock and roll bass mm -hmm. uh but you had an awesome project do you want to talk about that project only because it, it involved both of us i mean it, yes. it's, it's fun we you know we had a band for a while the, the main man in the band was Corey clark who is uh much better known for his main band which is warrior soul which is a real band that that has a long career and still going. Very successful career in the 80s and 90s yep. and signed to major labels. And Corey's just one of those Detroit rock and rollers. Like, he's the he's, real he's deal. He's the real man. deal, man. You can't fake that. You man. can't fake that dude, man. I don't know if he even has a Gmail account, but this dude, this dude knows how to rip a microphone. Like, he just, there's certain cats, I mean, not to get all, you know, rock and roll, uh, you know, mythology, but there's certain cats that just walk that walk and talk mm -hmm. that talk, and he's one of them. He, he is. So he, we had the, he had a side project that was a stoned. I joined that. It was really fun and started kind of, you know, it was, it was semi-serious. I mean, we had a fun time rocking, but we could also have fun with the lyrical content and the ideas. And so, of course, me being me, I, I, I start making videos for this, and Rob Cantrell was in the videos. We, we had met. I was through, honored to be in the yeah, videos. Yeah, I mean, I, I met him through my wife, uh, Rocky, who, who books all the comedies. But it's just funny. It's like I've been introduced to so many comedians, but, you, you know, you hit it off with who you hit it off with. And, yeah. And there's not many I've hit it off with that way. And, you know, we just became friends, and it was, uh, and it was great that we could do some things together. But even if we didn't, we, we, we've hung in various places over the years, and one of them was Bonnaroo, and that was great. And we yeah. did a little film there, too. Yeah, we totally made a film. You've always incorporated filmmaking. I'm playing you down a little bit because I just wanted to pump up your newest project, which mm -hmm. is ill and awesome, mm -hmm. and been written up on all the like the Rolling Stone magazine, and I've been seeing it on music blogs everywhere. But your history, just to let the listeners know, your lineage is that you directed some of the most epic music videos mm -hmm. of all time. You directed uh, the Beastie Boys, Fight for Your Right to Party. You also directed uh, No Sleep to Brooklyn. And then he switched complete different gears, literally did a three, not a 360, because they're both cool musical groups, but then he started working with Metallica and he directed probably one of the coolest videos, Nothing Else Matters, mm -hmm. 
which is one of the coolest songs. I love the Beasties. I'm not even a metal dude, but I love what Nothing Else Matters says to me mm-hmm. in just a more poetry sense. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that song particularly of Metallica's whole, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, song history, but that one particularly is is special to a lot of people, and and is is okay. one of the more approachable songs in their catalog, and so a lot of people really uh, reference that in their lives, and and it, you know when I came in their lives, they probably were feeling something, or you know, and and it it, it speaks to that. I think it's a very personal song, and you know, it's one of the probably three or four songs that that Metallica must do in concert like if you're gonna if you pay money to see Metallica you get that song and you know Enter Sandman there's a couple there and Master Puppets that like they can't leave the arena you know and that's their that I always say that's their stairway to heaven you know you have to do it you You have to do it but it definitely I mean it goes uh, like it goes beyond metal with that one like Mm -hmm. that one definitely cuts to the core you know of just Mm -hmm. being yourself Mm-hmm. And that really is the golden rule to a lot of yep. uh, life. But speaking to somebody that is like a super thrash person, mm-hmm. like that's mo- their most like mainstream, you know, thing. That's, I mean, their, their killer stuff are the, is like those first couple albums is just yep. ridiculous uh, thrash metal and definitely not mainstream by any means. No. It is now. You see it like young rapper kids wearing like the shirts and stuff, but... When I remember when that stuff came out, that was a pretty brutal rock and roll. But mm-hmm. in a, if you liked rock and roll, you got it right away. It yeah. was like drinking, a, if you liked rock and roll, it's literally like drinking an espresso shot of rock <laughs> yeah. and roll. Right, uh, right. it was high speed energy for sure, yeah. Yeah. And, and very cool stuff, yeah. And um, you know, I came into their world a little later. I started working with Metallica in 1990 when they were going to make the Black Album, although they didn't even have that, they didn't have any title yet to the thing, but I, I always wanted to go back because I knew a bit about their early history, but I wanted to go explore that and, it, you know, it, whatever. It only took another 25 plus years to, <laughs> to get to that. But I but it was really cool. I, I, I got um, a book uh, by Brian Liu and Harold Oyman. It's like a book of photographs called Murder in the Front Row. And it's mainly photographs, a little bit of text, but mainly photographs and these incredible photos. So both these guys were like there in the early days when Metallica came to San Francisco, but not just Metallica. You have Exodus, you have Testament, you have uh, Megadeth, of course, an L.A. band, but came into uh, San Francisco. Really, the San Francisco Bay Area had like a scene happening that was very powerful. Slayer, of course, enjoyed that. They were a Southern California band, but but they had amazing shows when they would come up to the Bay Area. Yeah, so, it's just known as a pocket for artists. Yeah, even that, to this day, it's to this still day. that way. Yeah, it's it's great. And in fact, I saw you play in San Francisco one time. And, and yeah, it's, it's a you know, it's always been a great supportive town for for music, for for comedy. Um, you know, going back to Lenny Bruce, you know, could play there. You know, when a lot of other places wouldn't have him. And uh, I think the first strip club ever was in San Francisco. Right. Actually, like it's right. just a pioneer. And, the gay rights, yeah, uh, the, beat the marijuana beat poets. One of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so yeah so anyway it was it's always been a supportive town and so i wanted to like explore that i'm i'm very obviously a new yorker i'm a brooklyn new yorker <laughs> yeah, but uh, but i you know i think i had an outsider's perspective that allowed me to look at this scene objectively and 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 do you know and and kind of do an examination it's it's the movie is not as much performance it's really a social study it's really a study of the young people and it's and for as much as it's about there's the rock stars in it is just as much the people you'd call fans or supporters who were like, and there's like kind of the people we all identify with. There's like the guy who drew the, the backs of jackets and the flyers. And there's like the guy who was tape trading and the, the, then the, the gals who were like, like house sitting, you know, for the, for their houses and stuff. And it was like very like open and, and kind of took in just everybody, you know, who the only, card of entry was you had to love the music. Yeah, you just had to be, you want to be next to that music and next yeah. to that scene. And those scenes, every scene, no matter whether it's comedy or music or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever you're into, uh, knitting or making honey, like there's just other people on the peripheral. You, yeah. need, you need artists, you need right. people to make flyers. You need uh, girls to help you pay rent. Uh, <laughs> uh, you need people with jobs. You need just people uh, to come to the shows. And yeah. in the beginning, that's really core love because yeah. nobody's really in it for the money. No, I mean, they're, they're creating, I, I've always said, like, especially the, with the level of musicianship here, I mean, to play that stuff, I mean, let's, let's talk about, a, you know, a Dave Mustaine or, a, or an Alex Skolnick from Testament or something, or, you know, certainly Kirk Hammett from Metallica and Exodus. It's like to 
play that level of music, you're already an accomplished musician. If you wanted to make money, you'd probably be playing something a lot more commercial. I mean, if money was the end game here. Yeah, you you're going to play in a cover band or you're going to try to be yeah. a session because you're at that proficiency, you're right. saying. like, So you could just play as good right. as any session player out there. Right. So you're playing instead, you're playing in a band that's like on the edge of where, where, where you know, thrash was in the 1980s. And you're not going to get that commercial airplay. You might hope it. I mean, a musician certainly wants to earn money to, to live. I mean, everybody has to. But yeah. it's like there, there, there was kind of this thing of like, no, we're, we're playing the music we love. That's what's more important, you know. And hopefully enough people love it and we'll make some money. But the idea was like, this is what we love. This is what we're doing. Especially Metallica and Slayer and all that stuff because it was piggybacked by the hair metal scene, which yeah. made so much money. Right. Like those dudes, like, you know, that Def Leppard album was so big and the Poison and like, I know mm -hmm. that was all around the same time, but those guys, specifically mm -hmm. the Bay Area speed metal thrash, they had kind of this skateboarder outsider attitude that I yeah. always loved, that I was always like, even though it didn't resonate, but I had friends that played in those type of bands. Mm -hmm. My buddy, Jeff Sherlock, that ended up being a top Marine was in Nosferatu, which mm -hmm. was the Virginia like thrash metal band. Uh, and he was my next door neighbor and I loved that dude. But uh, yeah, it just, it, it had, uh, yeah, fuck, fuck the establishments and vibe right. to the whole scene. Right, very, very rebellious and, and very, um, and of course, you know, great scenes kind of all over the place. And you, you mentioned one right here, which was the, the, you know, the DC sort of, you know, beltway kind of scene. I mean, the 930 club that had its own scene. Totally. And, and as all I've the minor about, threat, yep. all the punk, like that was all those kind of skateboard kids, mm -hmm. which is like, you think of them kind of back in the day, I'd be like, oh, what are those thugs or weirdos? But usually, like you said, these are like top musicians and like Ian MacKay is like one of the, you know, Amazing. top out of the box thinkers in terms of art and society. Like mm -hmm. before Radiohead, you know, there was, you know, Minor Threat and Fugazi before Nirvana. It, yeah, there was that right. punk rock ethic, which kind of, that's where your movie, it, it sits a weird niche because it was, it, it's metal. It's not punk rock. No. It is as metal as it gets. It's called riding the lightning, plugging right. in and just seeing how fast you can go. True. But they listened to those bands. That yeah. all got, you know, it, it all got They didn't like cheesy in. shit. No, no, no. I mean, the, yeah. the, the hair metal stuff was, was, was out. It was out. They wouldn't even talk but, about that. But they would but, fuck with Motorhead. They would fuck they with... They loved Motorhead. Motorhead. Everything from England and, 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 you know, things like, I mean, Iron Maiden, I mean, and, and a lot of other bands. That was the law. But... Yeah. But... You I love that word, law. Yeah, <laughs> but it was like, like, but you know, Minor Threat, they had respect for, for those bands. Those punk bands had a lot of energy and those thrash kids were listening to their Dead Kennedys records and, and their Minor Threat. It Seven was, Seconds, it had that upper tempo. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, was, it, was, it was in there. It's just they weren't doing punk music, but they were doing it at punk speed. I mean, actually in, in our movie, James Hetfield, one of the things he said, he said there was uh, in the early days in Los Angeles, they got kicked out of a number of clubs because they they thought they were a punk band. They'd show up and start to play, and they would be like, "That's not that's not metal music. That's punk." And they go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." I remember it out. being different. Yeah. So when they went up to the Bay Area, the Bay Area got what they were talking about. You know, they didn't yeah. get kicked out anywhere. <laughs> they were welcomed. Yeah, there is just a certain cool. Uh, I don't know. Just just in terms of fast, heavy music, it's mm -hmm. just sometimes a great backdrop to having a lot of fun. Absolutely, <laughs> it really is. It really is. And, uh, and as I say that, keep talking, Adam. Oh. I am gonna hit a bowl here. I do have some ground cannabis. Adam's not smoking today. He's got big things to do later on in the day, so I'm letting him off. Well, I don't care if you smoke or you don't. But uh, I have some espresso and I'm, I have some cannabis just for our listeners. I'm, so I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go see a, a show tonight and I'll have a few drinks there. So there you go. I, I will I will. Um, I will raise a glass to you at that point. Um, yeah, no, it, it's it's like really the, you know, the music, if you want to talk about thrash music, it was a fusion of uh, a lot of punk energy got in there. And of course, a lot of, you know, they, they took heavy metal, which they were listening to the new wave of British heavy metal from England. But those bands didn't really, you know, I mean, it was a lot to tour the United States and maybe Motorhead and Iron Maiden finally got over there. But Really, what the kids in the Bay Area did was they just they said, we like these bands. We like a band like Diamond Head. Let's play that, and then we'll make our own songs. And, yeah. And that, 
that act of creation of crossing over from like I'm, I could cover this kind of music, but I'm just going to make my own song that kind of sounds like that, or is at the same speed and kind of energy. Yeah, that's that's where they took it to another level, and of course add their own element into it, and boom, there you have the, that thrash metal scene in, in the Bay Area. That's perfect. That's perfect because yeah, I do remember those Diamond Head tapes, and it is that speed, and it is that punk speed. But there's specifically mm. when I look at the font of Murder in the Front Row, there is kind of a tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> like it's, they're not saying anything political. It's almost like almost horror shop goofball yeah. for 18-year-olds drinking beer and skating, and then just like we're gonna let's 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 rock it like Sabbath. Right. Let's rock it like this. I, yeah, I think that. You know that's an interesting thing. I mean, there's, there's you know, uh, you know, people could do a musicologist could do a whole study on this, but the the difference between punk and and thrash metal, um, the punks were very overt in yeah. their political, you know, fuck uh, Reagan. We're not yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And they were they were they would say it like and, and wear it on their like sleeve. read it off of New York Times or the Post. right. It was like, and, and it really was. It really was a certain kind of journalism of the time. I think it always is that that yeah. kind of thing as you know hip hop could be today. Yeah. Um, but there's room for everybody. Right. Yeah. Thrash was more masked, and they and they, they would mask it. And I think they were rebelling just as much. They were. Oh, they, I do. They were they were coming out of working class backgrounds with not a, you know great future. Very much like what like the guys in Black Sabbath were facing. I mean, the guys in Black yeah. Sabbath grew up in Birmingham. You had one choice in Birmingham. You went to work in a factory. If you didn't do that, if maybe you played music, you could get out, which is what they did. But right. otherwise, you had factory work ahead of you, and that was what you were you were bred for. And it's like kind of if you lived in the East Bay, it was kind of the same thing. I mean, they, they all talk about they You're were 100%. bored. They didn't really know what their future would be. There wasn't a great job opportunity. It was all warehouses. There was a recession. There. Yeah. yeah, it was a recession. And there was factory jobs. When I grew up in Virginia, it was called Bluebird Bus Factory. And Bluebird Bus Factory right. in Buena Vista, everybody's dad worked for Bluebird Bus. They all got insurance. None of them really went to college. Everybody just went and worked at Bluebird. But Bluebird's not there anymore. And it was like, at 18, they were like grown men. They were like, we're going to work. Right. But then you have the rebel kids that were like the guys that played metal. And those were like the stoner kids that were like, I'm not really into that. I can right. find a way. Almost rock and roll was a way out. But Right, but before it was a way out, it was a way to rebel. It was a way to say, yes. you know, screw you, I'm not doing your factory job. I'm doing this. I'm not this. playing by this game. And they have day yeah. jobs. I mean, every every rock and roller has some kind of day job that they Always. hate, but that they get through so that they could get to the night and play. Yeah. And they talk about that stuff in, in the movie. And so it really was very much, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, you know, you, you get those rock and rollers from, from that kind of experience. You know, it's, it's hard times breeds that. Yeah. It's kind of like... And, yeah. And, and a political, you know, so they rebelled. They, they talk politics in a completely different it's way. It's more society. Correct. And it's it, more so social. Exactly. So, and that's kind of, again, that's like the movie is much more a social study. I mean, people, it's like, um, I've had people see the movie that have said like, wow, I don't really care for this style of music, but I love the movie. And that's because it's really stories. It's really stories about these kids. So you can, like, I saw the movie. I love this, this documentary. It's called Dogtown and Z-Boys, right? Yeah. And it's about the early skaters. And love they were the skate punks. They were actually on the outside of skateboarding even in the 70s. These yeah. guys were, like, like, not even part of that. They rebelled against that. And, and yet, in doing so, they created everything in our, that is skate culture today. So I saw that movie and I was like, wow, that I love that movie and I don't skate. I never skateboarded. I just, you same, know, same. didn't do that. Um, but I could certainly, you know, I, I certainly love the Rebel Kids. I mean, that spoke to me. That was... Yeah, I like their art and their me. style and right. it looked like it was fun. I just didn't have the terrain or the know-how or the crew to do that. Yeah. Right. You, you needed a crew. You needed like-minded people. And again, a scene usually gets going where there's, when there's like a good dozen of those folks who get together. It happened in the Bay Area, probably in play, in other places, but if those dozen people like spread out and never really meet connect. up and yeah. connect, you don't have it. What they had in, in Santa Monica was the skate shop, you know? What yeah. they had in the Bay Area were the record shops where these folks would like start to meet and join up and then the shows. Um, usually those are those are good meeting points. Comic book shops also are places that, that like-minded outsiders wind up coming together. Yeah, I was gonna ask you, what was the very first record you bought? Speaking of record shops, do you remember that? That was a question I was going to think. And I'm guessing, can I say a guess? Go ahead. Kiss. Yeah, well, 
it might not have been the first record I bought, but it was the first record that mattered to me was was Kiss. I had yeah, I, totally. I mean, there was some, I get it, dude. I there totally were some get singles it. that I had as as like a very young kid, like when I was eight. But like that doesn't, you know, you're not musically developed in any way. You're just like hearing something. Yeah, it's like buying a toy. Yeah, yeah. so it really yeah, that doesn't count. What mattered for me, I was the right age when Kiss Alive came out, and I went over a friend's house and I looked at it. And I still that the image of that record album, that cover with with the four of them, is burned into my brain because I stared <laughs> at it and. And I there just, was no internet back then. <laughs> no, and you talk to people, and, and that was the thing. So it really, you know, that really did it, and I was fortunate to convince my father. What it was, what, what it turned into for me, was my very first concert. And so Kiss was my first concert, in, um, and it was the, the album they were touring under was uh, Rock and Roll Over. And it was like, I mean, you know, that was it. My, you know... My, my father's gone now, but you you met him, bro. I like, did. Your father was a great guy, yeah, yeah. a great guy, and, and he, a sweet soul, and yeah. just the kindest and cool. Yeah, and I, had it together. He man. didn't know what he was getting himself into on that day. Now he's he was a <laughs> World, World War II veteran, so you know he he, he yeah. certainly did his share, but he was certainly generations away from. And he was a, in politics briefly, right? Yeah, like, no, yeah, I mean yeah. he fought the good fight against yeah. the Vietnam War when it wasn't even the the popular stance yet. Wow, so he was he a hardcore know, pacifist. Yeah, 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 no, he 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 recognized. Um, exactly how wrong that rule was when when the Democratic Party was still, you know, pushing it because Johnson was was pushing the war. My father was like, "No, this is I've been a Democrat, but this is wrong. Like this, we can't get behind this. What we're doing is wrong." And he 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 fought against that anyway. That's he was brilliant. a good soul. That still did not prepare him from Ki for Kiss in 1976, <laughs> <laughs> which which is it's sort of like war. You know? Yeah, man. No, I get it, dude. Yeah, I don't know. He that, yeah, they looked like me. aliens from outer space. He just yeah. he just was, was artistically they weren't ready uh, for that. I, I I always hand it to him. He 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 stuck his fingers in his ears and he and he let his. <laughs> <laughs> you see these dudes in makeup spitting blood. Yeah, and yeah. he was just like he just came out shaking his head and he's and, and I, I you know he just was like I don't understand. Why does it have to be so loud? And I'm just like, oh my god, this is the greatest thing. It, you yeah, didn't care. Yeah, I mean, it was for me. It was like, it was like, oh my god, this is amazing. I got to see more of this. Yeah, we, we I cut together. I get it. When I would do start my interviews for Murder in the Front Row, I would kind of break the ice and talk to people. Like, and it was everybody interviewed, and I talked to them a little about, you know, what music, what got you into music, and it, it's it's and it's always interesting, and a lot of things are varied. Yeah, and then you come down to there's a, there's a lot of uh, you know the usual suspects I'd say and and like so you know you get your Black Sabbaths and Kiss and, and other things but one of the segments that'll be in the um, in the DVD that we you know obviously we shot the movie the movie's 92 minutes long but you'll, you'll, you of course shot, shoot a lot of interviews to, to make the movie yeah to make and, a documentary and we have extra like extra bits that we'll that we'll put in the download that you chop up yeah. and one of them is the musical influences and it's great and so all these people are saying stuff and very varied it's, it's a lot of really cool stuff what influenced people but you get to one part of it where we cut together because it was so similar i must have like like eight people who go kiss 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 you know what i mean that sort of hit very heavily in the lives of of musicians who then went on to play heavy metal in the 1980s you know they kiss in the 1970s just just was something that that was so omnipresent that that it, and 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 you know over the top that it just really spoke to a lot of people yeah that's like your beatles and your rolling stones yeah. of heavy metal like if you're going to listen to rolling if you're going to say hey i like rock and roll yeah you got to listen to the beatles and you got to listen right. to the rolling stone because they did it first and they did it the Correct. best right right if you're going to uh, talk about songwriting or anything song I mean, well elvis can, yeah it's yeah. a whole other thing yeah no but even the, the beatles and stones i mean that's where you get your song construction of 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 sort of everything that comes after and you can yeah. you can warp it and change it change it but it's not really that much different what what you know nirvana was doing versus what the beatles were doing in terms of song construction you know it's 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 a song it's it, a song it works in a certain way yeah so it's cool yeah so anyway that was a big influence and it's, it's fun to to talk to people about where how they got there it know? goes kiss pretty much 98 percent of the board yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that was a big one, you know. And again, especially you for thrash metal, because I was just thinking like Kiss had such you know comic book imagery and over the top imagery, and yeah. that's a lot of like the the funness to heavy metal is mm -hmm. over the top. It's almost like the professional wrestling right. of music. <laughs> it is, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, it is. It, it, 
it's fun. Right. Big, big is big is better, and 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 they do they do some amazing things. So yeah, it really got or loud. Fun. But then yeah. then you go flip the other side of the coin. My other question is is like when I look at metal and what's the second guitar? Uh, there's Kurt in, but in Metallica, oh, yeah, what's so, the second guitar? So, James is. James is the singer and guitar player, so that's your other guitar. And then you have Rob Trujillo, the bass player. Bass player, and who's, who's the other guy? And Lars Lar Ulrich, the drummer, of course. Cliff Burton. Uh, if you go back to that time, yeah, it's Cliff Burton was the original bass player. Well, who's of, the, of the solo band. guitarist? That'll be Kirk. Kirk. Kirk hands the solo. I mean, for a while you had, you had Dave Mustaine in the very early ba band, although, you know, he's only on the demo record, and then they let him go, and then and then Kirk was, was brought in, you know, filled in, and, and from their first record onward, it was Kirk Hammett. Wow. So amazing, you know, just, just. And his guitarmanship amongst, like, because yes. uh, you play guitar and I play guitar <laughs> badly. Not like, not like Kirk Hammond, I do. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to ask, yeah, is because yeah. uh, of the levels, as I see stand-up comedy, I'm sure as a guitarist, the more you do it, the more you understand it, uh, is like, Let's compare Eric Clapton to Kirk Hammond. Like, how does, like, because I always, I've been, I've been listening yeah. to a lot of early Cream, Great. and I've yeah. been getting into a lot of, like, uh, what's the other, pro a lot of Eric Clapton lately. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. are they the same, or? I, everything, you know, everything in some way is connected. You take it back to, to the root, uh, but it's, it, it's just, you know, from different schools of thought. Now, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I I believe Kirk has said he he likes Cream and stuff. I mean, I, sort of a lot of heavy metal bands, you know, can kind of trace back to to that. There's something about the 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 you know Eric Clapton brought a lot of things, including a lot of showmanship, which is what Cream did. I mean, you know, you know, Ginger Baker, rest in peace. You know, I think he, him he, and he, Jimmy he, were like the electric guitar guys. They were. They're the yeah. gods. I mean, yeah. they're the original gods. You know, yeah. with like then Jimmy Page kind of coming a little bit after. Totally. Um, and yeah, you, you know, you have others. I mean, that was that was the rise of 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 that. But what you're, what you're really seeing was when guitar stepped out front, and you have showmanship. You know, the Beatles and the Stones. While there were there were solos and stuff, you didn't have that kind of showmanship coming to the fore, you know. And where where and it was guys like Clapton and wow. and Hendrix and you know later uh, J Jimmy Page and you know on and on Jeff Beck. I mean, th these are the guys who who laid that groundwork for like suddenly a guy standing up there on the end, the you know the edge of the stage and just wailing. And that was that was that next step. Maybe Jimi Hendrix more than anybody just just turned around because Jimmy was so powerful that it actually influenced the 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 British guys. I mean, yeah. they all went and saw him play, and what he did actually took it like ten more steps, you know. And he said like it's okay to go even further with the showmanship. No, Judas Priest, fingerboarding, all that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, then, right. And then you get to that. I mean, a, a, a full generation later, you get to an Eddie Van Halen, you know? Yeah, and yeah. Like, you get, like, it takes you there. And then that influences everything. Can't forget about the Van Halen. Right. Well, that's how significant it is. You know, yeah. these things are milestones in, they in, are. in guitar pyrotechnic development, you know what I mean, of, of, of going off. Um, so it's but kind a lot of, it's of that is amazing. timing, though. Yeah. A lot of that is timing. Right. And then there are, like, you were originally saying like there are different styles mm -hmm. you know and as artists like an eddie van halen tone is so much different than oh a metallica God. tone that's so much different in yeah. guitar tones i talk about tones a lot and like that's mm -hmm. how i like music is yep. you know you can judge it especially in hip-hop like voice tone or guitar tones right. in rock and roll so i mean as you go up this this tree of of like of musical you know connection uh, that that's all kind of traces back from the blues it's like you know, you get to some place. I mean, all this stuff starts crossing over. And, of course, you, you know, in my mind, um, then you, you actually get, you know, hip-hop comes in. And what did hip-hop do? It started to cross over there, too, right? Yeah. I mean, we know the crossover points of, of hip-hop into metal. You know, like, just like the breakbeats. Yeah. And yeah. Just the, uh, yeah, that's all Run DMC and uh, those breakout albums right. are just like the simple rock beats. Like, there really is no... Right. Run DMC without Billy Squire. <laughs> well, right in a, in a way, yes, that's yeah, it. They, they it or to... Aerosmith. You gotta say that. That's You're just. Right. That, I mean, but at the same time, they were and they are and they had the best skills. They were in a top hip hop group, but a part of hip hop is just finding a good break beat. Right, it's like a part of the gig of putting a song together is the beat. Right. It's so this is something I love. So when I first met Rick Rubin, right, it's yeah. like I look at his record collection and it's like 
two two what looked at the moment at that moment in time to me looked like two very different things. And one was you'd look at one. Um, uh, they were all in, a, of course, uh, you know, plastic milk crates. That's what we carry, or, or you know, yeah, milk crates. Yeah, you got to carry, carry the crates. Carry records, right? The yeah, crates. They're still out there. And so, everything was like on one side was like like heavy metal albums. It was Judas Priest, Unleashed in the East, and there was uh, there was like two copies of like of Aeros, uh, Aerosmith, you know, uh, Toys in the Attic because it has Walk This Way on it, and and awesome. and, 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 and Back of Black, and that's because DJs would cut these back and forth to to just create the beats and everything. The other side of the record collection was all the current hip hop that was going on. Now, and and somewhere in the middle also was punk. There was a bunch of punk records. Now, I didn't see my my musical understanding was not enough at the time. I saw saw these things as different. He saw them as 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 the same. And he explained it as such and he also could see that like basically hip hop which was just rising at that point in 1982 and 83 just as Run DMC was coming into it, was actually punk. It was punk for African-American kids. I didn't understand it as that. It looked, you know, to me, oh, it's a whole other kind of music. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. And I see it now, you know. It's just punk. The do-it-yourself attitude. Yeah. The, the record executives who, who hear it and go, this is garbage. Yeah, fuck everybody go in right, 100%. Like they're used to listening to R&B records, yeah. and so they were throwing it out. Even even black executives weren't, weren't hearing no, it. No, I Martin remember. Radio wasn't listening to no, it. No, it wasn't top 40. And so they were like, this is, this, is, this is garbage. Well, of course, it isn't garbage. It's amazing. And, you know, he saw that I got to it later. Thankfully, you know the world, you know, was able to embrace this new new form of music. But really, if we're talking about like the history of music, it's all just kind of from from the same tree. You know, it all crosses over, and and later, as it really did cross over, and to the point where guys like uh, Anthrax are doing stuff with with um, Public Enemy mm-hmm. later on. Yeah, it, it's a literal crossover, and and of course yeah. those two bands. Anthrax saw, was early on. Right? right, that was in like 1991, and they yeah, saw no I'm difference. The man. I remember that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, that was it's a great, great project. So you had something where where like New York rockers basically could could, you know, get together. I mean, they they I think they probably looked at Public Enemy as rockers. They're all rockers, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're, but Anthrax specifically because it's a New York band. Yeah. And uh, hip hop was born. You can't. You can say whatever you want, but hip hop was born in New York City. It's like. Yeah. 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 Well. Yeah. It's. Uh, it's always evolved. But but it, but it but quickly took off. Now it, it's all over the map. Yeah. It, you know that what's amazing in, in the beginning of Murder in the Front Row, we explore like the tape trading network, and we explore it from the point of view of, of, of course, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. Because I but, remember Metallica tapes. Right. Those were yeah. But it was just as much going on in the hip hop community. You know, if yeah. I were going to do a documentary about that that would be one of the things I'd explore because so I'm saying what whatever was begun in the boogie down Bronx okay very quickly broke out of there and 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 it, the way it did that was tapes and tapes would go to Europe and tapes would go to to DC and they would go to LA and so you have Ice-T doing stuff you know what I mean yeah, I mean, yeah you yeah. had hip-hop just rising up in in the early 80s because that's the, how you got your music out yeah you know, it was you before know, inter- internet and all that stuff so if you wanted and I guess in tapes were cheaper than making an album and uh hip-hop well they're both kind of rough but no, tapes were well, small, compact. But you could do it yourself, you whereas it, pressing yeah. a record took took at least you know some wherewithal to do. You had to go to a building, which is usually owned by a late. You know, you had to. Yeah, yeah, go through yeah, that. yeah. Yes. It was, and it co- more importantly, it cost money. I mean, I you remember had to print it, it up. Got, I, I knew people who pressed their own records back in the day, and it was like you know whatever else happened, you needed a thousand bucks. Yeah, you know at least maybe even two thousand, and. Yep. It's like right there. There's your hurdle, you know. <laughs> unless unless you're Rick Rubin from the South Shore Long Island, you have rich parents that are like, here, you know, go make a record. Yeah, uh, yeah, but uh, um, yeah, making records. I I may I printed up like clear vinyl of my story of my first concert on my yeah. last album. So I but I have 25 of them. I haven't sold them all, but I I have us 25 of right. them on hold. Right, that's what I'm saying. But I'm seeing them more and more. I'm seeing, vinyl's coming back. Are you buying? Is this on vinyl? Are you uh, guys have a soundtrack? For we don't have a the- soundtrack. We we're gonna you know it, it's it's ultimately we will will be out on DVD and, and download and uh, and there'll be a lot of cool extras in there because that's where you know I can put all this stuff. But yeah. but that's like down the line. We're we're still working on that deal. Yeah, and uh, that'll be something for 2020. Um, but yeah, I, no, I'm, I'm happy about the resurgence of vinyl because um, it's like, although I don't have a, a turntable uh, in my house, I listen on, on digital. What I like about vinyl is that really vinyl was the, the, 
place. What was lost in the transition to digital, for the ease of digital, what we lost was the artwork. And it's it's such a loss. And not just the artwork, the, the liner notes. I can remember liner and notes from And you lost the weed albums. tray. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. And it was the best thing to clean shitty it, weed. Exactly, <laughs> clean the seeds out of that weed. So it's like all- And oh. you looked at the art and uh, it was like the best little coffee table ever, yeah, dude. I, I mean, right, it's, it's like, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I like Yes as a group. I mean, they're all right. But damn, those record album covers, right? By I Roger get it. Dean. That dude, was, dude, that was I get trippy. It. We stared we at love that, that Yeah, there's, yeah. there's albums. Dude, Meatloaf had that crazy one of yeah. the guy on the motorcycle. Right. Uh, and then, yeah, a lot of uh, hip. I just remember going to record stores and not having enough money oh. and just looking at the yeah. albums, right. you know? And then you would just specifically like, oh my God, there's right. that thing. So, there's, so there is that. So, so it's, um, yeah, so that's something that's lost. Thank God we saw like concert posters and stuff, you know, and, and uh, I, I, you know, I, I did think some music's stuff. in a good space right now. I, I don't know. It's, it's uh, yeah. there's so many ways to get it and there's so many ways yeah. to listen to it. And I think people are itching to go out more and see live shows. Yeah. And I see the young people like put together their Instagram and just like they figured out right. the game, which is just, you know, well, the gig. I, I, I think, you know, that's the one thing that, that, that keeps us all together and keeps us going is the live shows. You know, they, yeah. they, they, they could, I mean, they, they, they've destroyed the, 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 the money hierarchy of the, of the record business in terms of like, you know, needing a record company to put out your records and everything like that, but you'd still need something to be able to tour successfully. There has to be like a, a business model that works. And ultimately, I think it's great that there's that there's um, music festivals and that there's, you know, and, and on any given night, you know, in a lot of places and certainly, you know, the, the, the major cities and certainly the, where we are right now, you can go see live music. Yeah, yeah. Time. Every other month, there's some big festival somewhere. Like people love that because right. you get the bang for the buck, so you right. can see everything. And live comedy, you know, and live everything. It's yeah, like, live like, comedy is great to see because you know the crowds aren't as crazy. <laughs> you know, I here's here's the cool thing. I mean, I grew up. I know you probably grew up listening to certain comedy records, right? Yes. I mean, right. I loved comedy records, and yeah. and I listened to them, and because and especially as a kid, because you can't, really can't go to a comedy club because you're a kid. Yeah. And so you you, you heard that stuff, and I love you know. I Obviously, George Carlin's records, I mean, they're just, you know, a masterpiece. You know, I listened to whatever ones I could get from Richard Pryor. Yeah. Um, couldn't really get this stuff a lot of times. But, uh, yeah. It, it, and, and now, you know, but nothing. Once I start going to comedy, nothing is a substitute for live comedy. No record is a substitute for that. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the uh, comedy club experience is cool, man. I've yeah. been around, and, uh, and I'm not just biased on that, but going to a club or a room that's hot, that people are, yeah. are there and the comics are good. And yeah. you're seeing, uh, you see it, ha it, it's a really fun night out, man. Right. Even and if I, I remember that was how I, I got in. Well, I went to a couple open mics and I, I killed the first time, bombed the second mm -hmm. time. But then I went to the punchline yeah. in San Francisco and I went to their Sunday night. Mm -hmm. And I saw like W. Kamau Bell, Al Madrigal, Oh. Uh, Harmon Leon, Arge Barker, all like yeah. as young comics, like doing their craft and doing it. And they were just killing, you yeah, know? Yeah. And uh, and it was just, no, the club is cool. Yeah. Like, and it was a great setup and it was low key and people were having beers and everybody's laughing. Like, right. you cannot not have a good time right. in a room where everybody's laughing. Exactly, <laughs> and I was saying that communal experience, you know, that shared experience is, is something that, that you know that no um, record or, or anything can can capture. You know, and you can yeah. sit and listen at home, and what you're listening to is um, a, a room full of people having a great night, and you're sitting at home, and maybe you're having a good night, but it's not going to be as great as that that live experience. You know, mm, no, and and that's that's what's really amazing. So I I still I still am a big fan of the live experience. I try to you know it's it, it's you know it's a, it's a thing to go out. I mean, it's expensive. It's like you got to make a commitment to it, but. You know, on a good night, it's it's the greatest ticket in town. It's worth it. You know? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's just nice to get out, man. You yeah. got to zen it out uh, and get out the apartment, get out the house. You know. Yeah. Uh, a lot of this uh, podcast, I talk about stretching and, uh, mm -hmm. and my diet and stuff like that. Sure. Uh, you just gotta like for you. Do you keep like as a director? 
Somebody was saying, like the term was like, he keeps the set zen. Do you keep the set zen? Or what's your directing style, Adam? I, I, I've worked with you. You're, yeah. You have a zenness to you. Yeah, I, I do. I don't, I, I don't like believe in like, like yelling. Directors that like lose it and start yelling, it seems like you're, you've lost command, you know? And it's, it's 100% right. No, so, you're 100% you know, right. You know, you have to work to get cooperation. I mean, I'm always working at a... At a you know, there's never enough money, so I always have to, you know, kind of, you know, you're always, there's always that struggle of like, you know, get it done for, you know, what you have with you. But I mean, every time I run 100%. a set, I have to have a good attitude. Now, it, let's look at making this film, okay? This, my set was a interview stage, right? I have to get that set right. There has to be, I don't, you know, uh, I, if it's Zen, I don't know, but I know that it's, it's certainly, it should be peaceful and thoughtful, it should be the attitude. I can't have like chaos going on because what I need is the person sitting in front of me in that chair who I'm going to interview, I need to get them in the right headspace. And I can't do that if it's chaotic. And I want them to be relaxed. Relaxed people give you their true thoughts or their best feelings about something. And so I work very hard to get that attitude. That's on an interview set, on, on like a staged thing where we're you know, scripted. That's great advice. Yeah, on a scripted yeah. thing. Also, it's like try to, you know, Look, there's no substitute. Be prepared. Be prepared. Come in with your best, you know, preparation. If you're not prepared, now you're now you're trying to make up for it and that's a stressful situation. That's going to lead to like not great stuff. You know? Yeah. So there you are. That's 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 what I I've always tried to do in in everything I do. I don't, you know, they succeed to varying degrees, but you know, you try and create like a good thing. Now, try to be prepared when you're in the stoned. That is a challenge, you know? <laughs> so when you go to film like something with those guys, it is, uh, usually I'm doing some, a little more heavy lifting, but it's yeah. still, it's still great. I love, you know, Scotty T. Dimebagger, our singer. I spoke to him yesterday. Corey, I saw him about two or three weeks ago in Athens. Uh, those are two good Michigan boys. Yeah. 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 They are. And, and, uh, they're great. And, you know, we have talked about trying to play some more music we we did a gig this year uh we played earlier this year in brooklyn and and last year we played an in, awesome in metal bar you played at lucky 13 was lucky it? 13 lucky Swoon, 13 yeah. is like a cool like if you ever want to go get budweiser's and listen to some uh right. rock and roll that's a good spot it's actually in guana so yeah. check that place out the stone played there but i was doing shows in the right. city or i was on the road something was you, going you on you got booked somewhere yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. you gotta go otherwise you would have introed us and it was it was fun. It was, it was it was it's fun to like kind of do that with those guys, and so we've talked about doing some more of it. But again, it's 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 uh, it's just nice that you know um, I'm just happy my, my friends are around. You know I love it. I, you know I love like seeing everybody when I can. So it's been it's been fun with the movie. It's given me as I've gone out, I, I got to see a bunch of people. Corey Clark lives in Greece now because they actually have a, a rocking metal scene over there. Like they they seriously rock there. Yeah, I've heard of friends right. uh, traveling over there. With yeah, bands. Yeah, I mean I know like the 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 heavy metal rep usually goes to like like Germany and Poland. I mean they're they're like nuts over there for that. But uh, let me tell you, the Greeks are right there with it, man. And, <laughs> they, they, and they're they're great fans. So yeah, they went to rock. We showed the movie and Corey came down. It was it was just nice to have this shared experience with people who, who want to enjoy that story and yeah for a lot of people it's a history lesson dude you yeah know, it's a like lot of learning totally so it's um that's really fun and then also it's a great movie they they want you know it, it's fun to do the q a's and talk to people and that's what's great is that i can i can go and talk to people uh in in greece either either they speak some english or through the translator and you know what their experience it is that they love metal just like just like I do, just like a lot of people, and this movie speaks to them. You know, they want that too, and that's that's just so great to go share that with people someplace else on the globe. That's an awesome thing. I know it's uh, the first time when I went traveling. Uh, when you meet somebody from another culture, that's you share the similar interests. Right. It's like it's mind blowing. Yeah. You're like, oh my god, this person's all the way over here, yeah. and they're into this. Yeah. Uh, uh, another film festival in in. Uh, Athens booked the film after it. You know what I mean? That's great. It's called the Gimme Shelter Film Festival. It'll be in December, and they're showing the movie. But like, it's it's crazy. I mean, I wish I could have played the movie more in like Britain or someplace. Yet the Greeks have like stepped right up, and they're like, "We want this movie." <laughs> oh, where? What other countries has it been shown? Um, and then we'll get you out of here. It, it, it showed. We, we had one like screening thanks to Kerrang Magazine in uh, Britain, nice. uh, in London. 
It was in, uh, as I said, Greece. It's going to play in Barcelona. We, it's Sweden. Wow. It just played, did real well. And I'm going to one. This 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 is going to be one of my favorites. Uh, it's going to play next month in November in Mexico City. And oh, I'm going wow. there. Yeah, you got to go there, now, dude. Now, Mexico City is awesome. Heavy I've been metal there. in Mexico City is next level. I've filmed Metallica there twice, and it is just... It is the the insanity of of the uh, the level of commitment of of the not just the Mexican population the whole Latin America population yes. because people come from Colombia they come from Venezuela they fly their flags there are metal they're dudes f- everywhere I've traveled all around Argentina Chile yeah, oh ever. my God they're one, they're fantastic I love those fans yeah and so I want to go down there and hopefully someone will come see the movie yeah. Yeah, because Mexico City is like four New Yorks. It is, right? It's yeah, it's huge. Ins- it it's is insane. Blade Runner on this planet <laughs> Earth, dude. If you want to go down there right. and have some margaritas and fucking check out Adam's film, man, I, I yeah. recommend it because yeah. it, it, Mexico City is definitely a trip. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's, uh, do we have time for a story? Or yeah, something? sure. Uh, so I, when I went down there, I was filming something for Metallica in, in 2012, and I wanted to go out and get some footage of Mexico City, and you know, get some local, you know, local color, local like like stuff like that that I could, I could intercut. And I go to film at some place, and I meet a there's a genuine guy, a genuine luchador, you know what I mean, the the, the Mexican wrestlers, and he's there, and he's in his full, he's in his cape and his mask <laughs> and no shirt. Oh shit! And, and he is like pumped. And, and I go, oh my God, I gotta like film this guy. This guy's amazing. So I have my, my producer in Mexico go talk to them. Yeah, he'd love to be in a Metallica documentary. Turns out his, his, na- his name is um, uh, Axel, and he has a much longer name, but Axel will do. He's what it's to go by, yeah. But he is the grandson of Santo. Now, if anybody knows anything about Mexican wrestling, Santo is like one of the premier Mexican wrestlers. Like premier, I mean, he is like, like, like revered. Yeah, and he's like, like the Elvis or Jordan. Correct. Yeah. He's that guy, and and they they don't um, retire their mantle; they hand it down. You know, it's like it's like he <laughs> yeah. he's handed it down to his family. son. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's serious. It's like <laughs> yeah. like quasi religious, and and it's been wow. handed down here. Gotcha. So I made friends with him, of course, and yes. of course I put him in that movie, and and then I went back to film the interviews with Metallica. We happened to film them in Mexico City, where where they were doing a amazingly a three night stand in in the stadium. Like, go figure. I mean, that's how strong. The, the commitment is there. So I invite him down and I, and I film some stuff with, with him again, Axel. And I mean, and he's just amazing. He comes in like full regalia, you know what I mean? And, and like, he is the genuine deal. Like you want, you want some flavor of Mexico? You got it. You got, I mean, this guy's the real deal and he loves Metallica. Oh my so God. I got him, I, I, so I put him into the movie and he, he meets uh, Rob Trujillo in the movie and it's, it's kind of, it's just a fun moment. I just love it so much. Oh man. So anyway, I'm going back down there and he's gonna, he's gonna be at the screening with us and he's just the coolest dude and, and uh, real happy that, that, you know, that kind of worked into it. You know, again, the, this adventure you go on when you go to make something, you know, the people you meet and the places you go, that's that's what life's about. Really. That's what it's all about, man. Yeah. That's 100%. Yeah. And who would have thought that you'd be down there hanging out with a Mexican wrestler, man? I, I, Mexico City seeing a movie about thrash metal, yeah. murder in the front row. Yeah. Oh, man. So great stuff I happening. It. It's fun. And it is, uh, it's awesome to be here with you, of course. Oh, well, thank you for joining us at the Cannabis Coffee Hour. Yeah. I appreciate it, Definitely. Adam. Thank you. Uh, Hiram, what minute are we at, would you th- say? Uh, I would say you've been... Probably 40, 46, 47. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, is there anything else you want to plug, Adam? Is there anything else you want to get out there? Uh, I'm, I, I, basically, I'm working the movie right now. It's fun. I'm, I'm going to you know, keep... So keep... you're going to these music festivals. Yeah. You just released the movie. You got mm-hmm. written up in Rolling Stone. And you have a screening, you told me, in Brooklyn coming yeah. up. So Brooklyn will be, uh, we, have, we have one more, um, and uh, we're going to be at the Nighthawk Cinema. Awesome theater. November 7th. Right near Awesome the theater. Um, what's nice about a lot of these theaters now is that they, like, the Nighthawk has a full bar, so they serve beer. Yeah. I've always said Murder in the Front Row goes best with a beer. I would um, think so. It also goes good with a cocktail, but a beer is beer's good. Beer's good. And it, that's a great movie theater. They really care about like independent one. cinema as well as, you know, obviously mainstream. But but they show, like, all kinds of weird movies and oddball movies. And they'll, they'll give independent films a try. And I'm, I'm so proud to be there. Yeah, and that's of course, a movie I'm, lover's I'm just, 
spot. Right, yeah. exactly. So I'll be speaking there. Hopefully, Rob, you can come down. Oh, you're going to intro the film. I'm going to intro the film. Oh, yeah. that's great, man. So it's, uh, you know, if... if uh, if we can get up there, you know, that, that'll be awesome. You know, you yeah, know. yeah. Let's get people out to that. Yeah. That's at the Nighthawk. Um, what's the date again? November 7th. November 7th. Come on out. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be cool. So we're going to, you know, look forward to that because they, they really they really do a great job of, of showing movies. I'm, I'm still from the days where we had to sneak our beers into the theater, and we did so many times, so, <laughs> as I'm sure you did, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do the cough when you open up the top, Exactly, right? yeah. Yeah. We would wait. We would do a weird sneeze. Well, I, I was going to movies in the in the late '80s, and it was like you know, kind of every every year or so, every couple months, would be like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. So we would wait for that first mega explosion, which would probably happen like within ten minutes. He'd blow something up. Hell and yeah! Then we'd open them up and get going. So yeah, yeah, oh, love it. Uh, love you stopping by. Love you, man. Thank yep. you so thank much, you, Adam. Good luck with the film. Thank you, brother. Uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Be good to each other. Uh, like and subscribe. Shout out Hiram on the audio and the one and two in the espresso machine. Thank you, Hiram. And uh, that's it. We're out. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, awesome, wow. man. That was so much fun. Cuatro.